Father, let the text lead us to confess sins. Let us, free, f- let us flee from the sins we confess. We lie to ourselves about our sin. Instead of killing it, we cover it up. We pacify it. We pet it. We hide it. We feed it. We need a stern slap in our soul's face. Something to awaken us to the seriousness of our offense. We don't hate our sin. But we want to. We want to despise it. We want it to repulse us. We want to strangle it. But it seems we lack the ability. We lack the strength. We lack the fortitude. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. May we find the loveliness of Christ far surpasses the lavishness of sin. You didn't bring us out to leave us alone. You've given us your spirit and your word. We open one now and call upon the other. God, show us from this text the effects of our sin and the effectual love of Christ toward us in our sin. We need the gospel and we need it plainly. We need it powerfully. We need it persistently. Grant us, dear Lord, a gospel glimpse this day. This is our corporate plea. Amen. The good guys don't last forever. They keep dying. Such was the case with Samuel. He transitioned Israel out of a 400-year period of judges into a monarchy. He was Israel's godly prophet, priest, and judge. He was Saul's reluctant anointer, guide, and teacher. He was David's beloved friend and mentor. We were in the prayer room when Hannah prayed for God to give her a son. We were in the delivery room when that son, Samuel, was born. We were in the tabernacle three years later when that son was dropped off to serve the remainder of his life. We were in his room at age 12 when God spoke and he answered, Speak, Lord. For your servant hears. We were on that dirt road when he anointed Saul to be Israel's first king. We were also in his presence when he announced God's rejection of Saul as king. We were on the farm when he looked through David's older brothers and finally found the runt and anointed David the second king of Israel. We were at his training school of prophets when David ran to him and and said, Saul is trying to kill me. We've watched Samuel be born, grow up, lead a nation, turn over that leadership to kings, and now we watch him die. He was buried in his hometown of Ramah. It was the nation's largest funeral. The whole country came out to attend. Leaders from every tribe. Influential families to peasants living on the streets. All came to honor the man of God that God used to steady the nation. To honor the man God used to bring respect back to the priesthood and honor back to the office of judge. 
Everyone set their flags at half-mast. Saul attends the graveside funeral and behind him a, a long line of secret servicemen. Outside of family, this would have been the only funeral the honorable King Saul would have attended. It was a big deal. Even though he's rejected by God, even though he's using national resources to track David down in the desert, he still has the nation's approval. They have his back. City after city continues to illustrate this by ratting on David every time they see him. <laughs> There's Samuel in the casket. Not sure who preached his funeral. Saul had all the priests killed. Only one remains and he's with David. You can see the camera pan out from the funeral and in the distance in the cover of woods is David, the fugitive, hiding in the darkness, cloaked by the crowd, paying his respects to Samuel from afar. He couldn't let Saul see him or else it would have been an all-out war right at this funeral of the national treasure. Verse 1 says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Saul returned to his home and David returned to his mountain hideout. This marks the end of an era for Israel. Samuel provided a certain stability that the nation, that God's people lacked. The anchor of Israel is gone. The question marks abound. How will they move forward without Samuel? The good ones don't last forever. They keep dying. It rang true for God's people then and it rings true for God's people now. Fear not for the people of God when their leaders die. God will ever sustain his people and maintain his cause. When his ministers stop marching, his plan marches on. We have one story today, but we must put it into proper context. The context is God's man just died. Now the story. Verse 2. And there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was, notice this adverb, very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a thousand goats. Now, it's interesting that the author does not lead with the man's name, but with what he has. 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Uh, th this is like saying he lives in a massive estate with a 10-car garage, housing a red Ferrari and a black Bentley and a white Mercedes-Benz a blue Aston Martin, a yellow Lamborghini, a pearl Rolls Royce, and best of all, a Toyota pickup. Now the problem with this man is not that he's rich. The problem was he was absolutely godless. His name is Nabal. Because I was trained in the south, I first learned to pronounce his name Nabal. And I may revert to that during our study because I'm just used to saying it that way. Verse 3. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. 
the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Nabal has about half the wealth that Job did. Although he has something Job didn't have. He has a trophy wife. Her physical appearance is stunning. She's radiant. She's the epitome of class. Her, her facial features, the way her hair falls on her face, she's exquisite. When God formed her, it seems he formed her without blemishes. Physical perfection just graced her. She's beautiful. And her beauty runs more than skin deep. She's discerning. She's intelligent. She's appropriate. She's measured. She has beauty and brains. She also has a bull-headed husband. A brutish man. Unbecoming and mean. If it's true that opposites attract, then maybe that explains why these two were married to one another. The author takes out his brush and paints the most elegant, beautiful woman, and beside her, the most evil, harsh man. It's very likely this woman was, was pushed into this marriage by circumstances out of her control. This was an arranged marriage. Abigail was given to Nabal. She didn't choose him. Most scholars render this phrase describing Nabal badly behaved. Most scholars render that as evil in his dealings. That's really the emphasis in the Hebrew. Nabal is evil in his business dealings, his inventions, his endeavors. That's how he got his wealth, by running over people, by bullying people, by being deceptive, dishonest, and demanding. Which explains why the author calls him a Calebite, uh, which is a play on words. There's a, a secondary description meaning a dirty dog. Nabal is very rich and he has a trophy wife, but he's a dirty dog. Now Nabal kept his wealth, his 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats in the desert, in the rolling hill country. Sheep needed to graze. A rural king and southern states and other feed stores didn't exist then, so you fed your animals by letting them roam. Of course, you hired shepherds to guide them into good pasture, shepherds to protect them from wolves and steep cliffs. But falling off a cliff and, and the risk of being attacked by a pack of wolves were not the only danger. In fact, they were smaller dangers. The, the biggest threat came from desert marauders who would come and beat and sometimes kill shepherds in order to take the whole flock. These guerrilla bands could quickly open Nabal's tin car garage and leave with his yellow Lamborghini and his black Bentley. Nabal is rich, but not even he can afford to lose 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now David and his band of 600 men are living in the desert. They are on the run from Saul, but they have a little reprieve. Saul is busy fighting the Philistines, and, and David has started a new business, a security business, a sheep protection business. He had to do something. He and his men are on the edge of starvation. They were relying on the charitable gifts from farmers to stay above emaciation. <laughs> Apparently, David and his men had worked out a deal to protect Nabal's farm animals. 
David and his men were their personal security team in the desert. Running off the marauders and at times killing desert bandits. Desert bandits when they chose to attack. Notice verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And, and thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. The sheep shearing season, that's a tongue twister. The, the sheep shearing season was basically harvesting time. Twice annually in the spring and early fall. It was festive. It was a celebration. It was a time of generosity. It, it was customary for the wealthy to dole out gifts. A, a big feast day. Lots of celebrating, often characterized by heavy drinking. At the end of season, that's when you would also settle debts. David and his men should receive their annual paycheck. David gives his team the speech. S say this, peace, peace, peace. Then make the ask. Say, hey, hey, Nabal, we protected your men from bandits, from robbers, and from those who would pillage the flock. You didn't lose any men or any sheep. That's why we're the best at what we do. We kept our part of the deal. We kept the bandits away. Now you keep your part of the deal. A service rendered, now pay for the service. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Nabal is taking this opportunity to belittle and insult David. He asks, who is this son of Jesse? Now he knows who he is. David's men didn't tell him he was the son of Jesse. He knew that. Nabal is culturally insulting David. He knew David had problems with Saul. He knew David was out of favor with the king. And Nabal's allegiances lie with the king. It's a sarcastic expression. I'm not giving money to that landless rebel. He's leading nothing more than a band of renegades and ruffians. It, it, the whole speech has political overtones. Nabal is effectively denying David the respect and honor due the king elect. Do you think I'm going to take my good bread, my fine wine, my freshly butchered meat and give it to you men? I owe you nothing. You're nothing more than rogue slaves who broke away from your master. Now get out of my face. It's an insult top to bottom. He's spurning David's kindness and repaying it with evil. Repaying good with evil. 
It's an unwarranted slap in the face. Nabal shames David. Nabal lives with a clenched fist. He will not pay what is rightly deserved. Eight times Nabal says, I, my, mine. It's all about him and it's all about his stuff. He's a stingy man. Like a spoiled child, he can only speak of what is his. My bread, my wine, my meat. As if he produced all of this wealth by his own power. What Nabal refuses to realize is that every benefit he enjoys comes from the hand of God. David's men hear this. <laughs> they hear what Nabal says and they just look at one another. Oh snap, it's about to go down. They return to David and tell him all that Nabal said. And David responded, verse 13. Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. The baggage, that's the tents, the scarce food supplies, etc. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Well, this is hunted people, hunt people. It started out, peace, peace, peace. Now it's sword, sword, sword. There seems to be no pause between the report and the action. David is ready to seek revenge. You verbally insult me? I'll cut your head off. David is hangry. His pride is wounded and his stomach is growling. It's a dangerous combination. I should highlight that somehow David could find forgiveness for Saul who was trying to kill him, but could not find forgiveness for Nabal, who merely insulted him. You forgive this guy who launched a 3,000-man attack on you, but you can't forgive this guy who, who refused to give you a donut. David is going to return evil for evil. Notice, David did not stop to consult the Lord on this. He rushed out to satisfy a passion for vengeance. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. <laughs> Let's take a step back. Why does one of the young shepherds go to Abigail? Well, the verse says it. There's no point in talking to Nabal. He's not going to listen. The young shepherd says, David and his men protected us like a walled city so our sheep could graze and mate and give birth without fear of the desert raiders coming over and ravaging us. Now notice, Nabal's own staff view him as a worthless man. It's not just the author that views him as a worthless man. His own staff views him as a worthless man. 
The, the Hebrew word worthless is literally sons of Belial. He's more than a dirty dog. He's a son of Satan. The same word is used in this book, 1 Samuel, to describe Eli's sons who slept around and cheated and bullied people. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. Abigail, who was cited for her beauty, but also her discretion and wisdom, recognizes the seriousness of the situation and she takes action. She loads up 200 loaves of bread. Not slices, but loaves. She must have had a, a huge pantry in that mansion. She grabbed a couple gallons of the finest wine, plus 100 cakes of dried grapes, 200 cakes of figs, which were highly regarded for their sweetness and nutritional value, 60 pounds of grain, and very likely 150 pounds of meat. She put together the world's largest gift basket. We have in the text a perceptive young shepherd and a resourceful wife. She's decisive. She heads out right away in an attempt to intercept David and his men. She knows Nabal has put the whole family in danger. He's foolishly jeopardized their safety. The scene cuts now to David and his men snaking their way through the ravines. The author records a private conversation between David and I guess one of his top-ranked men. David said, I protected this man's flock and his shepherds and he returned me evil for good. David is rehearsing this wrong over and over and over in his mind. He's just dwelling on it and reliving it step by step. He's telling his sad story. He said, I will not so much as leave one man who belongs to Nabal. That's what verse 22 says. That's what verse 22 says in the English Standard Version, the ESV. English translators have lightened this over the years, softened it, and I understand why. The King Jimmy retains the Hebrew better than the other translations. It says, and I quote, I will not leave any that pisseth against the wall. That's how mad David is. See this scene. Abigail has a group of donkeys loaded down with food. David has 400 hungry soldiers loaded down with anger. David is getting closer. He can see the smoke rising from the fireside where they are shearing sheep. He can hear the sound of, of goats and sheep. He can hear festival music. In a moment of suspense, David and his men pick up the pace. Abigail sees them in the distance and she picks up the pace. The two groups meet each other. And suddenly, 400 men stop dead in their tracks. They've never seen a woman so beautiful. They've never seen such perfection, such elegance. They begin checking to see if their breath smells. <sighs> oh, get, I need a mint. Making sure their shirt is tucked in. Suddenly, they forget all about their growling stomachs. Abigail gets off the donkey and she bows her head to the ground. She's self-abasing. She's showing deep respect. 
Next, she launches into one of the longest speeches by a woman in the entire Bible. It's a masterpiece of wisdom and charm. It runs from verse 24 to 31. And in that section, she says, On me alone let the guilt fall. I'm the guilty party. I didn't see when your men came for payment. I would have paid you in full. That's why I have this pantry traveling with me. I was bringing it to you. Now, that's unusual because she's speaking as though the fault is hers. She's the consummate diplomat. The exact opposite of her husband. Diplomacy and Nabal never went together in the same sentence. Verse 25. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. In other words, my husband is an idiot. Abigail is the first in a long line of women who will say this about their husbands. She rapidly denounces him. Nabal is his name and folly is his game. He acts out the meaning of his name, fool. Foolishness oozes from him. I'm married to a fool. This sounds to me like a competent wife who has been called on before to rectify her husband's pig-headedness. This isn't the first time she's had to intervene. Nabal's wife and his employees feel the same about him, worthless. He's out for himself, accountable to no one, arrogant and crusty. There couldn't have been a more mismatched couple than Nabal and Abigail. She's the quintessential pearl of a wife, and he's the quintessential fool. A fool in designer's clothing, as Davy says. I agree with F.B. Meyer, who wrote a hundred years ago that it is remarkable how many Abigails get married to Nabals. Abigail continues speaking in this verse, verse 26. Now then, my Lord... As the Lord lives, capital L, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What is she doing? Abigail is saying, I know my husband needs to be judged, but let the Lord do that. It's not in your own best interest to slaughter him and his men and all of us. It would be disastrous for your rise to power. You don't want to take this matter into your own hand. The Lord will save by his hand. You killing my husband and his men and all of us works against God's program. Stick to fighting the battles that the Lord will honor. I know you've been sinned against. I know you want to take vengeance into your own hands. But leave vengeance in the hands of God. She's appealing to David from a very biblical sound perspective. This is a lengthy and very carefully calculated speech. Notice verse 28. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. There is a contrast between Abigail's view of David and Nabal's view of David. 
she calls him my Lord over and over again, 15 times. This is a deferential way of speaking. She keeps referring to herself as a humble servant. She's showing the same respect as one would show, you know, as one would show to a king. She joins those who know David will be king just as God has promised. She knows he will have a, her words, sure house. A Davidic kingly dynasty. Where did she learn that? Did she meet Samuel before he died? Did she attend a Bible study in Ramah? Samuel was still proclaiming God's word and training prophets to do, do the same until the moment of his death. Abigail is one of the great theologians in all of Israel. She recognized who David was. He was God's promised king. How many women have insight and their husbands are spiritually blind? Watch her give good theology in verse 29. Speaking to David, If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. There are two unique phrases here, both packed with meaning. In this day, people would put precious jewels in a cloth and bundle them tightly to ensure protection on their journey. The bundle was bound up safely and held tightly by the individual. Abigail is reminding David that God has him wrapped in a bundle and he's holding him tightly. He's safe and protected in the bundle of God. David, God has you bundled up. He's taking care of you. He has a plan for you and your kingship. Don't play the part of God. And to illustrate the protection, she gives a subtle reminder. God will sling your enemies out with his sling. Sling, sling, that makes me think of Goliath. David, you have your sling, and God has his sling. It's interesting how good theology brings stability, brings perspective, brings comfort when you've been wronged. David, don't stoop to a lower level. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't diminish your high calling. Don't sully your royal robes with the blood of revenge. You're headed to the throne. Don't do anything on the way that will bring reproach on the office. Verse 32, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. <laughs> what just happened? David was restrained. He was going to act sinfully, but was talked out of it. His anger is cooled by the pacifying tones of a discerning woman. Neuheiser says, Abigail is a reminder that God uses and even commends strong women. This is a woman who was not passive. She was not merely property. She was quick thinking, fast acting, and she is used of God to save the day. Who restrained David? Abigail. Well, yes, but ultimately God through Abigail. This is God's restraining grace. His preventing 
grace. He's stopping David from doing a horrendous sin. God sent Abigail to rescue David from doing something that would have been very wrong and very shameful and would have had lasting detrimental results. Abigail is the Lord's stop sign. Four times in the text we find God's restraining action. You find it first in verse 26. The Lord restrains you from blood guilt. The second mention is in verse 33 where David says to Abigail, Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. The third mention, verse 34, For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you have hurried and come to me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal as such as one male. These mass killings often took place at night, which explains the comment about the morning. God is so kind to show correcting love toward David. Restraining grace to David. David was in the desert watching over and protecting sheep, but the whole time he was in the desert, God was watching over and protecting his heart. This is God's pastoral watch over David's soul. Verse 35, Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your mansion. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. That's it. David returned to the desert, and Abigail returned to her mansion. When Abigail gets home, remember, it's festive time. Nabal is throwing a party. The text says he is feasting like a king. Which is interesting because he refused to accept David as king-elect. Alistair Begg said David was a king tempted to act like a fool. Nabal was a fool pretending to be a king. Because Nabal is drunk and stumbling all over the place, Abigail waits until the morning to let him know that she saved the family from total annihilation. Pick it up in the morning, verse 38, 37. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Abigail caught Nabal cold, sober, and with a banging headache. She revealed to him how he, his men, and his entire family narrowly escaped extinction. And the shock of that moment triggered a stroke or either a heart attack. And he lay helpless for 10 days. Verse 38, and about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. You have the human element in verse 37, a, a stroke or a heart attack. And you have the divine element in verse 38. The Lord killed him. We've arrived at our second funeral in the text. The first for Samuel. The second for Nabal. Two men. Two funerals. Two very different stories. Samuel was honored at his funeral. Everyone thought him worthy. 
Nabal was dishonored at his funeral. Everyone thought him worthless. They mourned for Saul. They expressed no such mourning. They mourned for Samuel. They expressed no such mourning for Nabal. There's even hints of rejoicing in the next verse. Nabal was the son of Belial. Samuel was the son of God. Those of you here this morning that are non-Christians, it's not just that good guys don't last forever, they keep dying. Everyone keeps dying. And you will too. And you will have your own funeral. You're either a son of Satan or a son of God. There is no middle ground. You must recognize that your sin is an assault on a holy God. A God who can kill men like Nabal and send them to hell. This is not a God to be trifled with. Repent of your sin and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back. This is the fourth mention of God's restraining grace. And has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. <laughs> Who saw that coming? <laughs> David marries Abby. Burgeon believes David is fulfilling the role of kinsman redeemer. Think back to the book of Ruth. Either way, we have two funerals and a wedding. Now I want to bring this text home to you. I want to bring it home with three applications. So let's slow it down and spend some time here. Application number one. Aren't you grateful for God's restraining grace? <laughs> God used Abigail to restrain David from committing a horrible sin. David spends the second half of this chapter testifying of how grateful he is for God's restraining grace. Now, I'm going to testify here. Something that's going to make some of you feel uncomfortable. If it were not for God's restraining grace, keeping me, keeping me from sin when I was bent on doing it, my life would be an utter disaster. Do you have the same testimony? What if you didn't receive that gentle rebuke? What if someone didn't walk in at that exact moment that they walked in? What if God didn't reveal your lesser sin before you became so emboldened and started doing a greater sin? What if God didn't send something or someone to rescue you from doing that act which would have been very wrong and very shameful and would have had lasting detrimental effects. <laughs> Praise God for his stop signs. Praise God for his pastoral watch over our souls. Praise God for his restraining grace. Aren't you grateful for the restraining grace of God? Application number two. Be quick to repent. 
be quick to repent. Repent is a, a theological word. It's a, it's a churchy word. Repent means to turn from the sin. Repent, turn from the sin. David, in our text, is approached about his sin and he quickly turns, quite literally, he turns, he repents of it. David is capable of correction. Are you? How do you respond to rebukes? How do you respond when someone calls out your sin? Deny it? Laugh it off? Turn it around and start picking that person apart? Defend your actions? Wordsmith your way out of it? Get angry and storm out? They aren't trying to hurt you. They're trying to help you. Abigail gives a model of how to bring correction. And David is a model of how to receive correction. I see in David a man who sins greatly. And I see in David a man who repents greatly. I see in David a man who is quick to sin. And I see in David a man who is quick to repent. Application number three. Don't return evil for evil. Don't return evil for evil. The words good and evil each occur seven times in this chapter. It's the theme of the chapter. Nabal, he returned evil for good. David did a good thing protecting his men and his livestock. Then he shamed David. He returned evil for good. David was going to return evil for evil. You shame me, I'll decapitate you. Abigail... Return good for evil. Abby received evil from David. He was going to kill her. And she returned good. Good food. Good theology. Good respect. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer it out loud. But answer it silently to yourself. Have you ever had anyone shame you? It hurts, doesn't it? How do you respond? Strap on your sword, your bazooka, and you light them up? Return evil for evil? You just head down the hill like David, and you write that email, you send that text message, you respond to that social media post. Do you, like David, tell your sad story and find someone who will listen? who will agree with you and support your sinful reaction? Do you rehearse the wrong you've received over and over in your mind? Even now, you're reliving it step by step. You refuse to let it go. You constantly dwell on it. Corey Tenboom who hid Jews in her home during Holocaust, wrote a letter to the person who turned her in. She wrote this. Today I heard that most probably you are the one who betrayed me. 
I went through 10 months of concentration camp. My father died nine months into imprisonment. Nine days into imprisonment. My sister died in prison as well. The harm you planned was turned into good for me by God. I am nearer to him. I have forgiven you of everything. God will also forgive you of everything. He loves you and he himself sent his son on earth to reconcile your sins. God... God, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, has given us instructions on how to respond when insults are thrown at us. God says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Put down your sword. Don't strap on the bazooka. Don't return evil for evil. You will receive a blessing for reacting as Abigail did. You will be drawn nearer to God as Corey Ten Boom was. But the ultimate example in responding this way is not found in Abigail or Corey Ten Boom. It's found in Jesus. It was said of him in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. David was grateful he left Nabal's evil in God's hand. You will be as well. Truth of the matter is, what we have in this chart... And what we have in this chapter is a beauty and two beasts. Nabal is a dirty dog. You know that. David repented and you might be thinking, how can you call him a beast? Well, I left out some verses. This passage doesn't really measure up to today's romantic standards. It wasn't like David and Abby lived happily ever after. David took on other wives. In fact, he was already married before he took Abby. He failed to uphold God's design for marriage. Deuteronomy 17 strictly forbid David from marrying multiple women. David would go on to commit other beastly atrocities, other events where he felt the restraining grace of God, but pushed through anyway and sinned. Just like some of you. Maybe I should say, just like some of us. Well, Kyle, that's, I mean, that's great what you're saying and all, but I've already done the unthinkable, and it follows me everywhere I go. What help do you have for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. This wasn't the only time in the Bible that you find a, a beauty and two beasts. On Mount Calvary, there hung two men more beastly than Nabal and David. And between them hung one more beautiful than Abigail. You have hope, dear friend, because there was a sinless beauty hanging between two beasts. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, this text 
was good for us. We needed it. Thank you for working in the mess. Thank you for, thank you for your restraining grace. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.